Good morning, Lindsley Avenue. Good morning. Good to see everybody again today. It's good to have some returning visitors. It's good to have some first-time visitors. We're glad you're here. We hope you will come back and be with us here at Lindsley Avenue each and every opportunity you have. Uh, this is the second hardest job that somebody's going to do today, and that will be preaching on the day after the clocks move forward. <laughs> the hardest job is what Thurl had to do, which was teach a class before the preaching. So, yes, everybody is a bit sleepier today than you might usually be on a Sunday morning, including Thurl and me. So, uh, we, we feel your pain, I promise you. Uh, I want to just spend a few minutes this morning, it won't be as long as some have been, looking at John chapter 7. Jeff read from verses 37 and 38. It's a chapter that involves tie-ins to some of the history of the Jewish people. Uh, Jesus says some things that relate to that history, so I want us to see what that history was so we can understand better what Jesus is saying and why. But I also want us to focus on some things that are said by people other than Jesus. John chapter 7. And that's why I've titled the lesson here this morning, Reactions to Jesus. Reactions to Jesus. Watch for those as we go through some of what John chapter 7 reports. Picking up as we start John chapter 7, it says, Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles. Well, we probably, most of us have heard of the Feast of Tabernacles, but to an extent we might ask, what on earth was that? We don't celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles today. Tabernacle is a big fancy word for a tent or a booth. Okay, When you have the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it's a giant tent. It's one way to think about it. A non-permanent structure. Right. This is the third of the three big feasts that the Jewish people had. They had feasts all the time, but there were three big ones. The other two being the Passover and Pentecost. All Jewish men who lived within about 20 miles of Jerusalem were required, were supposed to come to Jerusalem for all three of these feasts. But many others went there too. This was the big event in terms of feasts during the year. This particular feast of tabernacles occurred around October 15th. It moved around because the Jewish calendar was based on the lunar month rather than the months like we celebrate. That's why Easter and Passover always move and it's hard to know when those are unless you go look at a calendar or Google it. And so it's around mid-October, plus or minus a couple of weeks, varying from year to year. The big deal about this Feast of Tabernacles was people were supposed to move out of their house and live in a hut. Think of some sort of uh, Structure they would build outside of their house that was not permanent, and they were to live in these for the duration of the feast time. They were not to be closed up either. They were to be structures that did not block out the summer stars. It was to remind them that they used to be wandering in the desert after they left captivity in Egypt. And so one way to do that is to not be as comfy as you are. I have spent many a night sleeping outside when I was a Boy Scout leader, and the first few times of that were a lot of fun. 
But uh, if you're doing that in the summer and you're laying there because it's still 75 degrees, why on earth it's 75 outside at four in the morning or something like that, you really wish you were inside someplace. So the reminder of how tough or how much tougher things may have been in the past was a good reminder for God's people because we all get very comfortable in our present circumstances. They need to be reminded they used to be wandering in the desert. What were they supposed to do? What did the Old Testament say about the Feast of Tabernacles? I do want to read through this. This is from Leviticus. Listen for some of the things they were supposed to do during the Feast of Tabernacles. Picking up in chapter 23. The 15th day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day, there will be a holy convocation. Everybody got together. You will not do customary work on that day. For seven days you will shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you will have a holy convocation. You shall make uh, offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly. You shall not do customary work on it. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. So they feasted with some rest periods on each end of this time. They were celebrating the Feast of the Tabernacles. And they got together on the first and the eighth day in a special gathering that was to be different. No work. It truly was supposed to be a Sabbath rest day as they were getting together at the start in the end of this Feast of Tabernacles. Continue on. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep... It is a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You will celebrate it in the seventh month. You will dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That, there, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. And there's the tie-in. One of the main purposes of this feast is to remind them of the wanderings that they used, their ancestors had done out in the desert when God brought them out of the land of Egypt. But they've got these palm fronds, these branches, and fruit from trees that they will be having with them. That's the feast. That's the setting of what's happening in John chapter 7. Some 1,500 plus or minus Years after this feast had been given to them in the book of Leviticus, after the time of Moses, they are still celebrating this feast in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. Let's pick up with what's happening in John chapter 7. When his brothers, this is Jesus' brothers, had gone up to the feast, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews saw him at the feast and said, where is he? are looking for Jesus at the feast. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. 
As an aside, when you're reading the Gospel of John and you see that phrase, the Jews, you need to ask yourself, who's it talking about? Because the Jews could refer to all Jewish people. Sometimes it does. Are all the Jewish people ones causing other Jewish people not to speak about Jesus? That wouldn't make any sense, right? Because the people that just said he is good or he deceives the people are Jews. And so it doesn't mean all the Jewish people, okay? What is meaning here, and often does in the Gospel of John, are the leaders of the Jewish people, the religious leaders of the Jewish people. Perhaps the Pharisees and scribes or the Sadducees, that's who people are afraid of to say things very openly about Jesus. So be careful that we don't always, when we see the Jews, think of every single Jewish person living within 150, 200 miles of Jerusalem. That's not who it's talking about here. This chapter, chapter 7, is full of reactions to Jesus. We've just seen the first two. The first one, he's good. The second one, he's a deceiver. As we go through these reactions to Jesus, I want you to note something. Most of these reactions to Jesus still happen today. They still happen today. Everyone will have some reaction to Jesus, even if it's just to ignore him, even if it's to pay no attention to him. These reactions are still happening some 2,000 years later. Some people will say, he was a good man. Others will say, false prophet, deceiver, crackpot. I don't mean any disrespect, but some people will think of Jesus that way. These are the first two. All right, the first two. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So they were looking for him the first couple of days of the feast. The middle, he actually shows himself and goes up into the temple and starts teaching. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? There's another reaction. Essentially, he's an ignorant troublemaker. He didn't go to school. You can imagine today, who are you to be talking about Supreme Court law? You didn't go to an Ivy League school, or you wouldn't go to Yale or Harvard. Therefore, you can't possibly have anything to contribute. Sometimes that happens with people who are teaching classes or preaching. You don't have a doctorate in some theological uh, study area. And so who are you to be trying to tell us what the text says? I think it's important to note here that Jesus certainly knew what he was talking about. And sometimes study, while very, very good, study is not necessarily an indication of whether someone has wisdom or knowledge that they can share to give us insights into what God wants from us. But the reaction they have here is, this guy's ignorant. He, does, he probably can't even say the whole Jewish alphabet. I bet he doesn't know a lot because he never studied. So they're writing off Jesus for essentially coming from out in the sticks or out in the boonies. They never went to school, don't have to pay any attention to it. That's the third reaction so far in the Gospel of John. Good? He's a good man. You know, he's a deceiver. He's not a good man. Or he's just flat out ignorant. I don't have to pay attention to him. He can't possibly know what he's talking about. Jesus answered them. Answered who? The people who were just mumbling. This guy's ignorant. He never studied. 
Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, if anyone wants to follow and do what God wants them to do, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Only the one who does God's will really understand God's teaching or doctrine. And so for that, I want to make sure we stop for just a moment. You can know what God wants. It can be up here in your head. But unless it flows out and is demonstrated by what you do each day of the week, it all remains the head knowledge and does not really mean you know you know and are doing what God wants. Belief has to generate action. Otherwise, I have these intellectual thoughts. I know there is a country called Uganda. It's up here. It doesn't do anything during the rest of the week. If I know what Jesus says, if I know what God has said, if I know what God wants, but I don't do anything about it, then I'm not really following and doing what God wants. So the third reaction, ignorant rude from out in the countryside. He can't know nothing. Christianity needs to be put into action or it means nothing. It means nothing. Jesus continues, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Jesus answered and said unto them, I did one work, and you all marvel. He did one work in Jerusalem. He had done many more prior to this time up in Galilee. This is a group of people primarily coming into Jerusalem from down there in the south, and they've seen one work. So his real question is, are they seeking God's will or just another? He then also said, though, Moses gave you the law, but none of you were keeping the law. What's he talking about right there? Let's take a look. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? He really cut straight to the heart of that Problem the Jewish leaders and problem Jewish society had with what Jesus was trying to do and to, to tell them. So what do we mean? Essentially, he's saying you do a violent act to a young boy on the Sabbath because it's the eighth day since he was born. Jewish law said young boys were to be circumcised the eighth day after they were born. Well, Born on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, at some point, right? Your eight days out will land on the Sabbath when the law said, don't do any work. So you have to make a choice. God said, circumcise the young boys on the eighth day. God also said, don't do any work on the Sabbath. The choice was made, and rightly so, to circumcise the young boys on the eighth day. They would do it because... God understood. If I give you things you've got to do and it shows up on the Sabbath, you know, you've got a choice to make. Well, if you tell someone, you know, don't do it, then you're going to be breaking the law in two ways. And so, right? Look at what Jesus says here, though. You do a violent act to fulfill God's law on the Sabbath, and that's okay. 
And by violent, I mean it's not help, it's not really, it causes some pain and suffering on the young child. But Jesus says, I do something that makes a man whole on the Sabbath, that doesn't do any violence or hurt or pain. I do something that changes someone's life for the better. And you call me a lawbreaker? He had healed someone on the Sabbath. He had taken injury away. He had done good on the Sabbath. And they're all upset with him. They're hypocrites. That's really what he's pointing out. They're inconsistent. They are perfectly willing to praise someone who does circumcision on the Sabbath, but Jesus does something really good on the Sabbath that heals someone and makes a distinct change in their life, the rest of their life, and they're coming after him for that. So then Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. We fail at this all the time. We're told, don't judge a book by its, maybe we should say don't judge a Kindle by its screen. <laughs> maybe we'll have to change that for the 21st century here. But we do it all the time. We'll see something and we jump to a conclusion. Don't do it. I, I'll hold a mirror up and say, Gene, don't do it. Because it's so easy for all of us to judge by appearance. Jesus says, don't do that. If you're going to judge at all, make sure it's based upon proper circumstances, proper knowledge, and that can be difficult to gain. Don't jump to conclusions. He's really trying to tell these people, look, y'all need to wake up. Now, that's very appropriate here this morning, right? <laughs> Since we're, I know we're all sleeping. But he's telling the Jewish people, wake up, because you're arguing and condemning me when it's exact, in fact the same thing you're doing yourselves. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, You both know me and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he said, Jesus is speaking pretty harshly. He gets even harsher in John chapter 8, which I like to call the boxing match of the New Testament. He's pretty harsh right here. You really don't know God. You think you do, but you don't. I know God. Therefore, they sought to take it. Why? He's sticking it to them. He's, 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 he's like prodding them with all these different things that he's fussing at. He's already called them essentially lawbreakers or inconsistent. They're hypocrites. He's telling them, you don't know God. You think you do. I know God. He's doing all sorts of things to irritate the Jewish leaders. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour, his time, his appointed time for what he needed to get done here had not yet come. Many of the people believed him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? When the Messiah does come, and they all believed he was coming, is he going to somehow do more than this man Jesus has done? Picking up verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, more tie-ins to the Feast of Tabernacles, which ties into what Jesus said and what Jeff read for us. So hardly once more as we look just a little bit at the Feast of Tabernacles. Each day we had read the people took palm branches. They were to take branches out of the, the boughs of trees, palm fronds, palm branches were specifically mentioned. And they took them and they took them up around the temple area to the roof where they could look down on the altar. 
The priest took a pitcher, a giant pitcher, think of a giant pot, right? And went to the pool of Siloam, and water was brought back to the altar inside the temple area, while the people recited from Isaiah chapter 12, with joy you shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. Think of thousands and thousands of people carrying these palm fronds, shouting and continuing to recite from the book of Isaiah as the priest and all his garb is carrying water from a pool in one part of town into the altar area where the temple is located. The priest poured water out on the altar. And again, while this is going on, the people are chanting and singing from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. When they got to the point, oh, give thanks to the Lord, which occurs throughout Psalm 113 to 118. It's a repeated chant, a repeated statement. The people all wave their palm branches. So imagine, oh, give thanks to the Lord, and thousands of people are shaking these palm branches all around. What an incredible event and sight that must have been. They did that every day. On the seventh day, this was done seven times. Seven trips to the pool of Siloam. Seven times singing. Seven times going through these chapters from the book of Psalms. What an incredible event that must have been. Jesus stood out and cried on the seventh day when they've been going and getting the water and saying over and over again about the water of salvation. Look what Jesus says to them right here in verses 37 through 39. Jesus stood up and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke this, John says, concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But they're focusing on water and pouring water out from a, a, a jar, from a pitcher. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, out of you is going to come living water. When the Spirit dwells within us, when God's Spirit lives within us as a member of his family, don't you know, Paul says, that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? Out of us will flow the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. That's the living water that will flow out of God's people as opposed to the works of the flesh, which so often come out from people who are not God's people. Jesus is saying, you give thanks to this for this water, which will quench your thirst in the here and now, but the one who comes to me will get water that they really, really need, water for the soul. And I want to put this thing here. The answer to all of our problems is truly Jesus. Jesus is really all that we need. We think we need other things, other people. Jesus is really all that we need. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this, said, truly, some more reactions, this is the prophet. When they say the prophet, they're really saying this is the one Moses said was going to come, the prophet who would teach you, the prophet who would really tell you what God wants, the Messiah. Others have said, this is the Christ, they say it more specifically, but some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? He's going to come from out there in the, in the, in the boonies? 
He's going to come from the district of the Gentiles. That's what Galilee meant. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Some people didn't know Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him. They wanted to go charge him for crimes and have him appear before tribunals. But no one laid hands on him. So you got continuing reactions to Jesus. He's the prophet. He's the Christ. But he can't be the Christ. He's from out in the middle of nowhere. And the Christ, the Messiah, was going to come from Bethlehem. Jesus forces all of us to decide. The real purpose of the gospel accounts is to put Jesus in front of the reader or the hearer and say, who do you think this man is? We got that question that's asked in Matthew 16, where Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And he says, well, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, right? We're all familiar with Peter's answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But really that question is for more than just Peter. The question's for me. The question's for you. Who do you say Jesus is? All of these people in John 7 came up with these different answers. So far we've seen six of them. I'm skipping ahead, but I'm going to close with what's your answer to who this Jesus is. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why haven't you brought him in? Where is this guy, this troublemaker? Why didn't you snag him and bring him in here? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like him, like this man. So what's their reaction? They are amazed. Who is this man who speaks like this? Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have you fallen for it too? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd who does not know the law is cursed. What's the Pharisees' reaction? It's kind of a reaction of snobbery. Snobbery. That reaction of looking down on the, as I said before, the rubes, the people who don't know any better, who have been fooled, who aren't the educated elite of the time. And sometimes that happens again today. You know, society can look down upon people who are believers, people who are focusing on Jesus. And you can see it in some of the news sometimes. You know, just dismissal. Because, as, as Marx said, right, religion was the opiate of the masses. I think it was Marx, could have been one of those guys long dead now. Two additional reactions at opposite ends of the spectrum. Amazement and really in some ways dismissal. Reactions to Jesus. He's good. He's a deceiver. Ignorant troublemaker. The prophet. The Christ. He can't be the Christ. Amazing. people have given about Jesus throughout all history. None of that matters nearly as much 
as the answer you give today. The only answer, the important answer that matters, what's our reaction to Jesus? Any of those describe my reaction based on how I've been living? Do any of those describe the reaction that I show people Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? If you believe that he is good, that he is the prophet, that he is the Christ, that he speaks like no man ever spoke, then you need to change your life from wrong to right. You need to become a member of God's family by dying to yourself the way you've been living <laughs> and be buried in the waters of baptism here right behind you so that you can be raised to walk in a new life as a member of God's family and forgiven of anything that's ever come before. If you're a member of his family, but really haven't been focusing on what Jesus means to you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, then we have the avenue of prayer where we can ask God for help, for forgiveness. We're happy to pray with you and anyone who wants to call to God for help in a time of trouble. What's your reaction to Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? The question of the morning is together we stand and sing.